Okay, now we are recording again, and uh, mostly me, apparently, since I've got the mic, so I will be repeating some things from you. So, you found it somewhat easy until, until he stepped in, is that it? And you just messed it up? No, he didn't mess it up. He helped me define goals. Okay, and so did that make it harder? Yes. Interesting. So the more defined, the harder it is. Did you bring your son into it? No. Okay. How about the rest of you? Was it easy? Was it hard? What'd you find? So pretty clear, pretty simple to put that together. Mm-hmm. Now, did you do it together? Did you do it different, separately? Or? Well, in all honesty, I, at the last moment, I grabbed her and said, "Come with me." <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so. So right now, you haven't actually talked those through. We haven't. Okay. And once again, given Riley's age, um, did you bring him into that discussion? Or? I have given him one of these, but we have not gotten to Okay. Okay, so you, you kind of started it with him thinking about it, right. but you haven't actually done it yet. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But we intend to. Yeah. And again, this is a dynamic thing. This should never be considered done um, yeah, probably ever. <laughs> I mean, again, I, I keep saying don't judge your parenting until your kids are 30, but my baby's 32. We we are different with each of our three children. Even though They're all very mature adults. They're all very well-functioning parents. But our role in their life is still very strong and not the same. And and probably a year from now won't be the same for for any one of them as it is now. It is a very dynamic thing because people are. So having those discussions, bringing the, once the kids are able to cognitively grasp what we're talking about. Typically, again, I use the age of ten. There's nothing magic about that. Maybe your kids are not quite ready at ten, or maybe they're ready at nine, or you know. You have to make that decision. By the time they're teenagers, whether they're ready or not, I guarantee you, you need to have them involved because they're certainly ready to undermine your efforts if, if they don't see those efforts as, as valid. Um, okay, and again, if you haven't completed it, please do. If you haven't talked about it with your spouse, please do. Um, if you intend to talk about it with your kids, please do. Because um, in a week or so, everything else we do, everything else we talk about, will immediately come down to those goals. And if, if those goals are not clear in your minds, honestly, we'll be spinning our wheels. There's, there's not going to be much use of what we're doing here. Okay, um, we also last week talked a fair amount about Kohlberg and about um, Piaget. And uh, I'm curious, uh, are, does everybody feel comfortable right now with Kohlberg and Piaget? Do you, do you understand the gist of what they were describing and how that relates to your child or children? Let's start with Piaget because he was the first one and Kohlberg beat, builds on him. What, what is Piaget about? What is his work about? How children learn at different stages. Okay. How children learn. 
Um, even a little bit before that, how they think, but but absolutely, he was a, a child psychologist, and the most immediate application was educational. And again, this is the first time anybody, believe it or not, had said, wait a minute, they don't learn the same way we do. So maybe we should be trying to teach them differently than what we do. Um, and of course, things that we take for granted today. Um, he, he then described three big stages, each one broken down a little bit. I'm, I'm sorry, four big stages. Uh, what's the first one? Sensory motor. Sensory motor. And how would you describe sensory motor to a new parent who's never heard of this? They experience through their senses. Right? Th who's they? The kids. Uh, birth to two years old. Okay. So th these, these very, very, very small children, uh, you use the word experience. They experience the world through their senses. What's the sense that they first experienced the world through? Taste. Okay. Suckling. Taste is a big... Taste and touch are probably um, neck and neck. Uh, first is touch probably because we touch them. And yet very quickly, the suckling instinct kicks in and taste kicks in. And so as soon as they learn how to crawl, what do they do? They put everything in their mouths. They're trying to learn. That's how they, they know to learn so far. Now, as the other senses develop, then they'll rely more and more on them. But no big mystery that everything hits the mouth real quick. They don't necessarily, by the way, it's not like dogs who seem to like the taste of all sorts of bad things. Watch little kids' faces. It's hilarious. Because they'll put stuff in their mouth and then, boy, I do not like that. However, um, their memories aren't what ours are necessarily. And the younger that, the, the truer that is. So if you've got one who's just learning to crawl, then um, the, the preservation of reality is just not there. That's why, by the way, sometimes they just so totally freak when mom's not there. They get used to mom's face. Mom leaves. As far as they're concerned, mom's dead. Mom's now out of the picture. Mom's not in the world at that very, very early stage. And they'll freak out. And then mom comes back in, life's good again. It's, it's almost that simple for them. So they, they put something in their mouth and they find out, boy, that's just horrible. It takes them a few times before they remember how horrible that is. So the next time they go up to that, don't count on them remembering that. Because odds are really good that it's going right back in the mouth. Now, when does that stop? And that's a trick question. Never goes away. Thank you. It never. Yeah. Now we probably don't go around sticking things in our mouths immediately. We have other senses, and so we listen, and we smell. How many of you have ever heard a song and then emotionally been right back somewhere twenty years before? Have you had that experience? Mm -hmm. The bridge. I've been listening to the bridge. It's like all high school. I keep thinking, oh, that's. Yeah, I've actually got several mixes on my uh, on my iTunes that are specifically designed for that. It's like if I want to take a little trip back to Bellevue, Nebraska, I don't have to fly in. I just hit that, and there I am. Okay, so we all we've all experienced it. We just don't 
know, we didn't know that that's what it was called. But understand that's still true today, even in terms of influencing how we learn. So um, do you have, let's say you need to do some study or maybe some, uh, some deep office work that requires thought. It's not just, you know, rote stuff. Do you, do you have a kind of scenario or environment that works better for you than others? Definitely. So yeah. somebody share. What do you, what do you have? Not loud, it's just very low in the background and a fan. Between okay, the fan, so the fan, the, fan, the coolness of background the fan, music. background music. Any music? A any music. Okay. It, it's not anything specific. Just I mean, specific, just from music. classical to rock, it doesn't matter. Okay. It's just some music. Okay, now, how do you suppose that got there? We listen to music all the time. My dad constantly had music on. When we're at home, wherever we're doing, we had music on. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, you cool things off, too. Yeah. Because the fan came in. See? And the fan may have nothing to do with temperature now. But if you want to concentrate, you go back to a place up here that feels right. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, it's like it cancels out other things. You're able to concentrate. Is there anybody in here whose perfect scenario is not a fan and background music of any kind whatsoever. Yep. Okay. So how's your different? What what is your office? Just a plain old office that has three doors, they're all closed. I just open my blinds a little bit so I can see out my window. TV on. TV TV sometimes on if I really want to concentrate the TV's off. Okay. And so there. so seclusion? Yeah. Not only light, but a glimpse of outside. Okay, so probably not great if there's some giantly interesting thing right out there, but just a glimpse of outside, so it's like outside surreal. And then maybe background noise or background thing, okay? So are you all getting a picture of what your own thing is? Um, and, and this can be dynamic. I, I, I didn't used to need a, a fan to go to bed to sleep. However, I married a woman who averages four at a time. Mm -hmm. And I say averages because there's nights when there's six, but usually, it's, actually, it's probably averages five then because I don't think it's ever less than four. And it, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, you walk into my room and it's like this wind tunnel, you know. <laughs> and, and competing currents is really interesting too, but I usually pull a sheet over my head to sort of get away from that. And... So now, if I'm in a hotel by myself, um, nope, not going to sleep. Got to have a fan. Got to have something background noise. Or I'm going to just lay there and hear every moment of silence pretty much all night long. Just, see, we, we keep learning this way. And it affects our emotion as well as our cognition. Because children do not differentiate those things, not children this age. Now, as they progress, um, certainly by two, and by two, they're definitely into pre-conventional uh, for most children. Um, it's not un uncommon for them to start much earlier than that, but it's going to be a very uh, stutter stop. 
So pre-conventional is the next one. What's that one about? What's, what characterizes that? It's kind of like association without distinction, almost. Well, the early part. So describe an association. Um, kind of like the example here, you're, you're calling out a, an animal or a car, and they may see a truck and think it's a car. They may think it's one kind of animal, it's another. So there's, it's close. It's, they can associate with something they just learned, but they can't distinguish necessarily what kind of animal or what kind of vehicle, I should say. Okay. So they begin, maybe. yeah. And, and what we're dealing with is symbolic. This is the beginning of our ability to grasp symbolism because that word or even sound sometimes represents in their mind that reality. But as you say, they can't differentiate. So puppy can be puppy or puppy can be really old dog or puppy can be cat or puppy can be horse because, let's face it, they're all fuzzy and four legs and not human. So choo-choo train can be, you know, choo-choo train, or it can be uh, a boat whistle, and you look choo-choo, you know. Uh, one of my favorites was my oldest grandchild. Uh, we, we sort of re-experienced this as the kids grew up, and his first Easter egg hunt. And for Jaden, um, we used to take him to Starbucks, and... Um, he, when he first went, he bought a little piece of chocolate cake or chose that, pointed to it. They bought it for him. From that point forward, anything that came out of that case was chocolate cake. Okay. Um, and then it generalized, and anything that tasted good was chocolate cake. And then, since we had candy in Easter eggs, anything that was found in an Easter egg, including a quarter, he opens it up. There's a shiny quarter. He sees the quarter. He knows it's a quarter. He's two years old. He knows that's not something you eat. But immediately, very excited, chocolate cake! <laughs> because to him it now means something, some surprise or some cool thing I get. Say. And then as he gets older, he begins to differentiate. By the time he's six... He's looking at the two-year-olds thinking, what babies that they think that? Because he doesn't remember. Um, and that's when the parents remind him. And, and so from two to six, uh, and again, broad, broad years. Please don't get hung up on the specific years. The kids are developing this. Now in this room, all of the kids on that board are older than that which means that they've all got the sensory motor and preconventional learning ability. And then they begin to move into what? Concrete operations. Now, how does concrete operations differ from sensory motor or from uh, preconventional um, or pre-operational, I'm sorry. And how and, and exactly how does it build on it? Okay. Once I can begin to make those distinctions, I can begin to see that things influence each other because I can distinguish them. Immediately, that's one thing to another, and that's pretty much all I get. So it's not uncommon for a five-year-old to figure that out. That dog bit me. That hurt. Next time I'm around a dog. I may still call that, 
you know, 18-year-old dog puppy. But when I call it puppy, it's not nice. <laughs> it's scared stiff because I'm, I'm still, you know, that led to that. And once again, let's remember, that does not go away. Why is it we have phobias today? A phobia, by definition, is an unreasonable fear. Me getting into the water with sharks that could bite me in half, not unreasonable. So don't do that. But um, there are fears that, you know, is just unreasonable. There are people who are afraid of rabbits. And, and they do bite, by the way, but not like sharks. So it's really not likely you're going to be seriously harmed by a rabbit, right? But somewhere back there, something that was like a rabbit, or maybe it was a rabbit, but your finger was only that big. And when that rabbit crunches down with that, those teeth that are capable of, of breaking through some pretty hard vegetables, uh, that really hurt. And sensory motor, that stayed there. And then pre-operational, not only did the association stay there, but you began to, that caused that. So then you start applying it in other situations. Now, concrete is what we call logical reasoning. And th that goes on into adulthood in terms of development. Most, uh, well, 40 years ago, most colleges had uh, courses in lo logic, um, most do not today. <laughs> I personally find that to be a very bad omission um, because what we do is we take the basic ability that by the end of adolescence or at least the, the end of the teens is there and we stretch it and we help them begin to understand it in more specific ways and then start applying that in other ways. And you can do that at this level. You can sort of stretch people into further growth. Okay, um, But that's still very concrete. So now let's take a concept that you want your kids to learn. Love. How does love, how is love experienced by uh, the sensory motor child? Touch. Yeah. Okay, might be touch. Okay, hug, more touch. How else? Just anything getting their needs met. Yeah. Getting their needs met, yeah. That's huge. And they may not understand it, but they feel it. It helps them feel safe. Yeah. And, and again, if we're talking the older end of that, don't discount even auditory. The soft voice. The, that whole cooing thing. The... The, the difference in voice between one person and another. One person's voice is associated with taking care of me, with hug, hugging me, and the other voice is associated with things that hurt. Then, you know, the next time somebody with the voice associated with the things that hurt comes by, even if they're a very loving person, tough luck. <laughs> Kids already learned. And, and it takes a while to unlearn that. Now, how does a preoperational child experience love? I don't think by imitating it, by what they see. Okay. Like they see mom or dad giving a hug to show love, and so that's how they... Okay, let me, let me clarify. How do they experience someone loving them? By interaction with the child. 
Like what? Um, playing together, praying together, reading a bedtime story. Okay. So it's going to be very, what we call phenomenological. It's going to be specific phenomenon, specific things, and they're going to attach to those things. That's what love looks like. That's what love. If you love me, that's what you do. Tuck them into bed. Tucking them into bed. Or telling them a story after you tuck them into bed. You know, that whole thing that we go through. But it's going to be very concrete for them. Extremely concrete. But then we get into what we call concrete operations, where all of your kids are, some of them are, are further than that also, but they're still there. Now, how do they experience love? Okay, so get, can you give me an example? Uh, you know, showing up for my son's basketball games, for example. Okay. Or back to school night, which I didn't show up for. <laughs> so this thing, whatever it is, is important, and you're there for me. And so I want it, and, and you're providing it, and I can see that logically, if you care for me, you make an effort to be there, and therefore I consider that love. Okay. So it's not quite conceptual yet, but it is, you can see how it's much broader than that very concrete thing the six-year-old's into. And it might even be more than one step. It might be this to this to this to this, because by the time they're 14, 15, 16, that logical progression isn't just one step. If A equals B, then A equals B, C equals B, A equals C. They can get that. See? Then they move into the final version. Your kids right now, given the ages we were just talking about, still may or may not be there. And the reason I say that is there are adults who never get there. And we've got to be very careful about that because we don't want to be labeling people. And some of these adults, by the way, are very high-functioning people. But they're not high-functioning theorists because the next stage is what? Which involves what? It's the ability to conceptualize and understand concepts. Okay, so it's all about concepts. It's about the ethereal. So now love is a concept. And I, and I can think it through in all sorts of different ways, which, by the way, will drive you crazy when they do that because uh, some of those ways are dead ends and some of those ways they're, they're chasing their tail. And it, you know, it's kind of fun, but... Yeah, we, we went through that. Now we're going to do it again. Look at that. Um, and, and the thing is, they may do that at 13. They may do that at 16. They may do that at 21. They may do it at different, at different depths, all three. Because conceptual ability isn't black or white. It's not there or not there. My conceptual ability today is peaked over my life. It's, it's one of those things that... Unless you have true dementia, and even then, the research is pretty weak, you don't necessarily lose it with your memory. So that can continue to grow. And so, yeah, they've got that kind of ability at, at 13, and they can get really into causes. And at 18, they can really get into causes. Um, and at 21 or 30, they can still, but they can do it in a more, more mature way at 30, hopefully, than at 18. Does that make sense? Okay, are we...
I'm, I'm seeing body language. Is it too cold in here? It's a little cold. Okay. Um, would you do me a favor? Okay, your um, what I would suggest is... Well, I was going to say turn one of the two off. There's actually two um, units that parallel here. So some. Well, I saw several of you just keep doing this and putting things on. Okay. Oh, jeez. You know, not that. What you were just talking about, it was the conceptual conceptualization. So Riley had a little situation where he had a girlfriend for the first time for like two days or something like that. And the girl just texted him and just took him to his limits. But he couldn't he couldn't handle it and he texted her back <laughs> by text broke up and said, I'm, I'm too young for this stuff. But by the way, I think two days is a delightful period for the first one. <laughs> Pretty funny. They get to they get to experience a little bit and kind of get their foot in the water, yeah. and then it's like okay, out. Exactly. So he, he it was more than you know, like you said, the first uh, couple of steps. So he yeah. actually kind of realized something. Yeah. This is way too much for me. And again, we can challenge kids. Um, it's not necessarily going to change their conceptual ability, uh, because conceptual ability then gets applied to everything. Let's face it, we haven't thought about everything, have we? So when we first start thinking about something, our conceptual ability is first applied to that. It doesn't matter if we're 13 or 30. And it's going to take a while to kind of work through and start getting our arms around that. With maturity comes more ability, there's no question. But, you know, the first time if it's 13, well, the first time if it's 19, it, it's going to be a very similar experience for them. And as parents, we need to be ready to support them and help them. Because sometimes at 19, there's a whole lot more writing on it. And yet, it's a very similar experience. So, okay. Now, we spent a lot of time on Piaget because he's the, the foundation for Kohlberg. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Kohlberg unless you've got questions. But the whole point with Kohlberg is that he looked at Piaget and said, okay, if this is somewhat accurate, and let's remember, this isn't inspired, this is a, uh, a theory of description, a way of just describing, but we can all see ourselves in it, and so it has some validity. Kohlberg said, if there's validity to that, then this has to influence how we think about right and wrong, and therefore make decisions about right and wrong, which he then termed moral decision-making, using the term moral more in a sociological sense. How is it that, that people make moral decisions at the different levels? Well, a one-year-old makes moral decisions very simply based on, um, am I hurting? Okay, so far so good. Am I feeling good? Because if I'm hurting bad immoral. If I'm feeling good, not just neutral, but moral. And again, let's remember, we don't lose this. So, did you have a question? No, there's a bug in front of me. Oh, oh sorry. that's okay. Um, so, for example, I remember a slogan, which is it's almost um, 
trite today, but there was a time when it had a lot of meaning. If it feels good, do it. You've heard this? Okay. Um, that was one of the most destructive things our society has seen in the last century. I mean, sociologically, we go back and we, we now have some distance. We can see this. But it, it, it seemed right, and unfortunately it was predicated on an extraordinarily immature form of moral decision-making. Now, we know that feeling good isn't always good. Feeling good in and of itself isn't always good. And the reason we know that is that we can see um, cause and effect. So we, we've come to a point in our cognitive development where we can look back and say, yeah, that didn't work well. And so what we do, and, and that almost always involves other people, so what we do is in the second stage we start making decisions in terms of how it affects us interacting with other people. First it has to do with rules, period. And then in, in that stage, and some of the kids that we're talking about may well be still very solidly there, if not certainly influenced by this still. Where, But wait a minute, that's against the rules. Or, or wait a minute, that's against the law. And rules are rules, and law is law. And they haven't quite gotten to the point where they don't care about that yet because their, their life is sort of built on that. But then they hit a point where they begin to challenge those things, but not usually all at once. And so now it's about their social system. By the way, their first social system is what? The family. Yeah. I mean, you are their social system. However, by the time they have entered into any uh, s uh, systematic group experience, Sunday school, baseball team, first grade, or kindergarten, or preschool, see, we, we push it back further and further and further. Then we force them to try to function at that level where they're understanding the social system. Which, by the way, with a four-year-old, fails miserably. <laughs> Which is why the four-year-old goes and, and, you know, their version of sharing is, I don't want it anymore, my attention's over there. So if you grab it, I'm not going to scream and hit you. Uh, if I don't want it anymore, but my attention's not over there and you grab it, I'm still going to scream and hit you. See, because I'm still way back over here at, at what he calls the pre-conventional, which is based in um, Piaget's sensory motor. But as I grow, then I begin to understand that, no, if I'm going to get along in life, I'm going to interact with other people. In fact, I like interacting. I like friends. I like what friends do for me. And so it becomes more about the system. Now, as we mature, we, we begin to grow out of that into Kohlberg's third stage, which has to do more with... Um, I would just use the word principles. That's, that's going to be the one that covers everything in some ways. Um, the first of the, the two stages that this involves is what he calls social contract. So it's still back to uh, principles within social settings. But it's no longer about just my little social group. So I began to, uh, to, to generalize out of it and begin to understand things further. Then... I'm in that final stage, hopefully. But when I say hopefully understand, many, if not the majority of adults, never get there. You can challenge people by putting them in uh, positions of moral dilemma 
where they have where their their current moral decision making simply doesn't help and you can challenge them then if they have the cognitive ability to move into that third level but not everybody is so challenged and so again look back at so many different things that have happened in history that seem to us to be so blatantly immoral and yet hundreds of thousands or millions of people participate in them. What in the world is going on? Well, what's going on is nobody ever challenged them to come out and they're still stuck in this is our system, this is us, so that's okay. As long as, by the way, the horrendous things being perpetrated are not perpetrated against us. There's an us and there's a them. And them, eh, they don't count. So it's not until you get to that third level, which is very conceptual, that them counts a lot. And of course, from a Christian moral perspective, we want that, right? We're going we're gonna to hopefully have things like that that represent that on our goal wheels. Which means we've got to be aware of where our kids are. So... Um, I'm going to leave that to go into the next section, which hopefully you've looked at already. But before I do, are there questions? Is anybody struggling with this at all? Yeah, I just don't understand what you were talking about, us and them. Are you saying that we want our kids to segregate themselves? No, I'm saying they do. I'm saying we do. I'm saying everybody does. Um, hopefully we grow out of it, but not always. And so last week I think I gave the example that when I was in first grade, um, I went to a school, and, uh, and we were integrated. We had two uh, Negro, not black, not African-American, Negro. That was the polite term. What was the other term? Colored. colored. And the reality is, it was, colored, colored is a broader term, because us is white, okay? And them is not white, which includes a lot more than what we would consider African-American. And so uh, we were integrated, but in our school, Fountain there said white, and that one said colored. That one, by the way, was far dirtier. Why? Didn't do cleanliness. Why? Because they were lesser. Because they were that less fucking the us versus them. Yeah, and, and the people making the decision as to which one got cleaned were us. Right. We're mm -hmm. white. But because of that, see, there's this reinforcement thing. Because it, it, it's all about keeping that us and them thing going. This, this is very much social system. You go to the third level, it blows it to pieces. But we can then rationalize, oh, they're dirty. Why are they dirty? Well, have, you ever been to, have you ever been to where they live? 1960. Mississippi. Deep Mississippi. Rural Mississippi. They didn't have payment. They didn't even have gravel. I was there. So, so they're dirty. They like it that way. They live that way. Now, of course, if you happen to be one of them, did you like it that way? Why did you live that way? If you were a black man in 1960, Columbus, Mississippi, and you lived out in that area, the bottom... Bottom, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, means that's the land that's not flooded today, but will be as soon as the rains come. 
So nobody else is living there, so that's where they get to live. Why would they live there? It's not a trick question. It's a simple question. It's a product, product of us. They weren't yeah. allowed to live. Yeah. They weren't allowed to live other places. It was cheap. They couldn't afford to live other places. There's a, whether it was the law or outside the law, but force or simply money. This is how we set it up. It's no different than that fountain that was filthy because those of us, <laughs> we never had it clean and told ourselves they like it that way. Now, what had to happen was something that challenged that, and it happened individually. It, it almost never happened, interestingly enough, because of the marches. The marches were interesting. Sociologically, it was the kids in the marches who were interacting with each other. The kids who, who the, the stereotypes were being blown out of the water because all of a sudden they're relating to these people as human beings, and now they're being pulled into the next level of moral decision-making. That's when things started changing. Like the Freedom Riders that you're talking about? Well, the Freedom Riders, um, you, are you, you mean the movie? No, or the, the actual uh, white middle-class kids who were coming down supporting. Uh, some, but it was more the, the white kids who lived there, oh. who all of a sudden, because there was a generational difference, and some of them, not all by any means, but some of them began to interact with others. And as they did, they changed. They then interacted with their white friends, and they started challenging them, and some of them changed. And that change I just described, at best, that process just in that one little system was usually like a five-year thing, which is why today, if you go to that same area, you'll still see things like that. You won't see the signs, because it's illegal. But you're still going to see a lot of remnant of it, because there's no way that we're done with that. I think we can be, by the way. Um, I think a society can be, and I have a very negative view of humanity. <laughs> We're just a bunch of sinners. But you can still grow out of things. But it, it takes an enormous amount of time. Now, you can make sure your kids grow out of it by, A, not exposing them to it to begin with and making them part of it, but, B, then challenging them as they look at it in other circumstances and always presenting those challenges that make them think, pull them further. And that brings us to what the big emphasis for today is about, which is discipline, the nature of parenting. Hopefully by now you've read uh, what's in there. So I'm going to give you a little summary, and then we can just back up and ask, do you have questions based on what you've read? Um, and by the way, in case I forget it, the, the section I would like you to read next, uh, for next week is the parenting team. It will culminate with um, the form that, and I'm trying to find it in mine, um, that's d entitled Defining the Parenting Team. So you're going to stop with the section that says prevention. I can't stop you from reading, but I'm not asking you to read that yet. But definitely, not only read, but do the exercises leading up to this page right here, if everybody can see it, the page that says parenting, or defining the parenting. I give you a, a, a page number, but mine's not the same. It's all yours. So I tried that, and I got messed up. So make sure you do that. That one is almost as important as that goal wheel. 
And you'll understand that when you read the rest of the section because you are not the only person parenting your child. You are, however, the one to make sure that you're all pulling in the same direction instead of pulling your kid apart, which is unfortunately an extremely common thing today. Okay, so in this, I, I outlined two different things, and they're both based in Hebrews. So and the, the section you read for today, Hebrews 10 um, in the Hebrew letter, you have uh, an unknown author writing to Jewish Christians, um, probably just before the fall of Jerusalem. We say probably because it's, it's kind of hard to imagine a letter of that nature being written after the fall of Jerusalem and no, uh, no comment being made because it would have been very germane to what the discussion was. Um, and in this time, there had been a decree right about the same time as the letter, probably. Um, but what led up to the decree, we know it was going on for decades. The decree was from a council of rabbis that met in Jerusalem that said, if anyone in the synagogues accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, they are to be put out of the synagogue. So these people are under immense pressure, immense uh, persecution, not just from the Gentiles, but now from their own people. And so the, the Jews defined Christianity as not Jewish. The reason that's important in chapter 10 is because chapter 10, uh, the author has been comparing the new covenant to the old, saying the new covenant comes out of the old, fulfills the old, but because of that is inherently better than the old. And then in chapter 10 begins to sort of wrap around, so what? Well, part of the so what is... What happens to the person who continually tramples Jesus underfoot? Who sees Jesus' blood as nothing? Which just described all of those people in the synagogues who are persecuting the Christians. They know the truth. They reject the truth over and over and over and over. And in Hebrews 10.29... The phrase is, how much more severe a punishment do they deserve? And the word punishment is uh, the Greek word timoreo, if you're interested in such things. comes into English this way. And it means vengeance, payback. In other words, these people have consistently sinned consistently done evil, done wrong, there will be a price for that. There will be a punishment for that. A few verses later, expanding the same thought, the author says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Which in my mind, I've shared this from the platform before, is one of the stupidest things I ever read when I first read it, because I read that without reading anything that came before. And I'm thinking, terrifying, you got to be kidding, he saved my life. He loves me. He's forgiven me. What's, what's terrifying about that? And, and the problem is, I forgot or ignored the fact that he wasn't talking about people like me. He was talking about people who rejected Jesus. And ultimately, there is a terrifying result because God is their judge and they have no defense 
for their sin. God is our judge as well, very briefly. But we have a defense, the covering of Jesus. Jesus paid our penalty. But then in Hebrews 12, what, what he does is he morphs into Hebrews 11 and talks about the fact then that we need that Jesus in our life and the way that is going to be accomplished is through faith, not through the law. And so Hebrews 11 is the famous, quote, faith chapter. And it's known as that, much like 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. And it's, just, it's, it's been called the hall of heroes of faith because there's person after person after person who are illustrations of faith. All preparing you to get to Hebrews 12 where he then says, So, don't think it's so strange when you experience all these fiery trials because God disciplines those he loves. As a father disciplines his children. What father doesn't discipline his children? Only the one who doesn't accept him as his child. That's in Hebrews 12, uh, specifically 5 to 6, but it continues through uh, 11 is, is kind of a culmination. Now, the word discipline is different than the word punishment. So we've got punish, which is this word. And we've used that word. We, un unfortunately, we use the word synonymously sometimes with discipline. But discipline is not punishment because it is not paying back. It is the word um, in English, pedia. Okay. Understand Greek does not go straight into English sometimes, so you may see different letters. So, pedia is the word discipline. God disciplines those he loves. What in the world is that word? Um, how many of you have ever heard of pedestrian? What's a pedestrian? Not a trick question. Somebody walking. Somebody on their ped, which is a foot. And so pedia has to do with the foot or with, with walking on the foot. Okay? Because pedia was the process of walking a child through life, bumping them into enough and the right things so that that child learned maturity. The child became mature. It was not something that happened in an hour's space. It was not even something that happened at a certain building. And so we have a, a, a weird use of the word school because we see a school as a building where students go, right? But we have a weird use of that word when we're talking about fish and fish who... Uh, flock together, if you will, swim together. If you've ever seen big schools of fish, it's amazing the coordination they've got. It's like, shmoom, they're all gone. But they're doing it all together, and they're a school of fish. The reason is that originally a school was a group of people, like those fish, following the teacher. Aristotle taught this way. Plato, Socrates, all the Greek philosophers who taught, taught this way. The rabbis taught this way. Jesus taught this way. Jesus was not unique in how he taught. He was simply teaching the way everybody else taught. It was what he taught that was different. And if you wanted to be part of their school, then you, you got permission to then just follow them around. And you placed yourself under their leadership because here's the thing. 
He says in a few verses, all discipline is unpleasant for the moment. Okay, which is a bit of a hyperbole because some discipline is actually not unpleasant. However, how many of you remember discipline as a child that you did not like? Can everybody relate to this? Okay. Uh, all discipline for the moment is unpleasant. By the way, all punishment is unpleasant too, <laughs> usually more so. But about that discipline, when it has accomplished its purpose, and a better translation is the NAS, NASB, the New American Standard, when one has been fully trained by it, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace. In other words, God knows what he's doing. And as he bumps us into life, or lets us bump into life, so the last horrible, painful thing you went through, did God cause it? And if it's a horrible, painful thing, I'll tell you right now, the answer is no. But did God allow it? What do you think? Of course. He's sovereign. He could stop it. He could have us avoid it. So why would he allow us to go through things like that? To grow us. To stretch us, to grow us, to make sure that things develop in us that even though the, the impetus of them is painful, the end result is far, far more important. Righteousness and peace. Stop and think about it. He's actually preparing us for eternity. That's what that's about. So we have two pictures. We have discipline and we have punishment. And we need to see ourselves in those two because one of them, well, let's be real, we probably do both. But one of them we're commanded to do and one of them we are not. In fact, we're commanded not to. God never, ever, ever said that we are to take the role of a judge with our children and punish them. Now, if you want to continue to use the word punishment instead of discipline, but you mean discipline, well, okay, feel free. I'm not going to be the word police and follow you around. But at least make sure there's a difference. So what is the difference? Well, who punishes? I just said that. Who punishes? God. In what role? As the judge. I think in the notes it says society does only send people like that's yeah, and in fact, in Romans, Paul says that's on behalf of God. Right. That God actually gives the authority and the power. And, by the way, all the way back into Proverbs and the Psalms and the Mosaic Law, holds those people accountable because they're representing Him. So, to, to be a judge, to be an official, and to misuse that and not do that for the benefit of others uh, is a sin. And there, there is absolutely a punishment for that. Even more responsibility. That's why I think James says, don't let many of you become teachers, because as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. In other words, there's a double standard. And, and you're going to be held to a higher standard if you do that. And we, we kind of forget that sometimes. On the other hand, discipline... Who is God when he's disciplining us, according to Hebrews 12? Father. He's a father. He uses a metaphor that applies to us. So we have someone we can model our, our discipline, our parenting after, 
but we also have someone we are explicitly told not to model it after, which is God as judge. Because we're never given, uh, ultimately, certainly in, in uh, the raising of our children, we're never given the right or the responsibility to judge, to be their judge. Let's look at some other contrasts. Some of these are brought out in your reading and some not. The motivating force for discipline, according to Hebrews 12, what I just quoted, is what? It's love. If I want what's best for my kid, I do not just leave him and hope he somehow develops well. That's basically recipe for creating a monster. If I don't love him, that's what I do. So if I love him, I'm involved in his life. I am the, the pedagogue. Um, it comes from the word to lead. I'm the one leading him while he's walking through life and making sure that those bumps are safe enough that he'll survive them, but that they're important enough that they'll teach him. And by the way, that includes just things that aren't even bumpy because as they walked through life, they debriefed all of this. They talked a lot of the teaching was simple communication. If I'm motivated by love, that's what I do. But if I'm punishing, if I'm taking vengeance because the kid did something, something obviously I didn't like, something that probably put me out, then what's my motivation? Revenge. Revenge. What? What is the motivation behind revenge? What's the anger? It's the emotion that fuels it. And in God's case, in Hebrews 10, we can't question this. This is absolutely righteous. But there's that nasty little passage in James that says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. In other words, James reminds them, your anger is not like God's. God's anger is motivated out of pure righteousness. Ours usually is motivated out of pure selfishness. Mm -hmm. You ticked me off. You embarrassed me in front of my friends. You're frustrating me. You just made me miss my TV show, my game, my whatever it is, fill in the blank. You know. And so we respond out of anger to our children. Every one of us has done it. It's, it's almost impossible not to. It is, however, possible to ramp that down very, very seriously when we've got something to substitute in place, which is discipline. If we don't, if we're just doing the knee-jerk thing, it's going to be anger. I guarantee you it's going to be anger. And interestingly enough, kids know the difference. There, there's not a lot of studies on this, but there was one that was done back in the uh, 80s, actually at Kansas State University where I was studying at the time. And it, sh it was interviewing college students, asking them a couple of questions. Did your parents ever physically discipline you? And almost all of them, remember this is the 80s, almost all of them said, yeah. Okay, when they did that, was it good or bad? And the ones that would say good, they would say why. And the ones that would say bad, they would ask why. So the ones that said good, when they said why, is because they were teaching us. They were making sure we grew up, that we learned. What does that sound like? Discipline. Discipline. They got it. But the ones that said bad, they didn't say that. 
Well, because he was there, they were just angry. It was just like, you know, the big bully could push me around. See, there was no discipline. There was no sense of I'm trying, I'm being taught here. And by the way, it doesn't matter what the parent says because we know better as kids. So when my father came after me, I didn't blame well, he was angry. If you'd, have, if you'd have somehow been able to freeze his anger and just say, now what exactly are you trying to teach him? He would have had a clue. He would have had no idea how in the world to answer that question because that's not what it was about. So what did I learn? Mm-hmm. Well, I learned he was bigger than me and I, there's certain things I better not do at least until I'm big enough to put him down. And that day came. And then I threw out everything that he told me. Pulled some of it back later because I realized that some of that was cutting my nose off to spite his face. But that took a little while. So this actually is counterproductive. It's not going to help us meet our goals. It's going to work against our goals. So the motivation is love, and the process is teaching for discipline, retribution for punishment. The effect on the child for discipline may well be hurt. And I'm using that word hurt very specifically. In other words, unpleasant. Now I'm back to Hebrews, right? That might be emotional hurt. Mom and dad are very disappointed in me, and they just said that. Or it might be, um, well, I guess it would still be emotional hurt. Um, I'm into concrete operations. I can understand the linkage between two things. And I was told if I did this, then I would not get this. I did do that. I do not get that. Now I'm upset. I want that. I don't get that. I'm hurt. Okay? So we got to be willing to hurt our kids or let our kids be hurt. But hurt is not harm. And that's the thing that we've got to catch, that while we allow hurt to happen, sometimes we even invoke the hurt. We do not harm. Punishment harms. It may harm physically, frequently does, but it will harm emotionally. It will harm spiritually. How is it that someone who has been taught that father takes retribution for being put out, for being inconvenienced, for being irritated, and does harm to me? How is it that person then turns around in faith and believes in a loving father? I'm going to tell you, that is a hard one. It was extraordinarily difficult for me. And I know people who are never able to get over that hump. So, I mean, this is not neutral. Discipline has as its, as its subject an immature person. We've got to remember that. A child's job descriptions get their own way, not because they're evil, but because they're children. Sometimes they're evil. only when they got that from certain people (laughs) so that child even though the child may be frustrating as I'll get out to me that child is an immature person and my job, my task is to help that child become mature that's what those goals are about, right? See, I, I bet you none of you put, I hope I'm right, none of you put on your goal wheel, by the time my child is 18, I will have paid him back for everything he ever did to me. <laughs> we don't do that. We, we See, we know. But think about what it is if we're actually 
punishing our children. Think about what that says about how we see them. We see them as recalcitrant and incorrigible. Two nice big words with very big meanings. Recalcitrant, rebellious to the point where they will not change. Incorrigible, hopeless. There are such people described in Scripture. Romans 1, people who are like this, who sin so much, who strive with the Holy Spirit so much that finally the Holy Spirit says, you want that sin? Not a problem. You got it. And quits striving with them. And as soon as that happens, that person's condemned eternally. Because that person now sees evil as good. You never repent of something that's good. So that person becomes incapable of repentance. Which, by the way, means if you're ever feeling guilty, you're not one of them yet. It's kind of a comforting thought, right? Mm -hmm. If your children ever experience guilt in any way, they're not incorrigible. And if your children are still children, meaning under 18, I'd bet anything they're not incorrigible. In fact, I know your children. They're not incorrigible. Okay? I don't know them as well as you do, but I know them well enough to say that. So we, just, we need to sometimes pull ourselves back and say, yeah, well, you didn't spend the other night with... Yeah, I don't care. They're not incorrigible. They may be tough. <laughs> they may be hard to get through to, but they're not incorrigible yet. Incorrigible, by the way, literally means uh, these people are psychopaths. There's very, very, very few psychopaths. Most, most of us have actually never met them. I've met one or two. Those guys are freaky scary because they don't care. They literally just, they, they don't care about anything except them. And there's a punishment for them. By the way, they got there somehow. We need to be careful of that one too. I don't think anybody here is going to produce a psychopath. I'm not sure any of us would. I mean, we're not good enough at being bad, actually, to do that. But what we can produce is an extraordinarily frustrated person who sees God as a tool that some guy bigger than me or more powerful than me used against me. So guess what happens when that person leaves home? God is... He's out. Even if they believe in God. I mean, sometimes they don't believe in him at all. Sometimes they truly do believe in him. They just hate him because of their experiences growing up. That's how much power we have. Our job, folks, is discipline. Your job with your children. Our job with your children. You've heard her say it. You've heard Edmund say it. They are your assistants. They're not the ones primarily responsible. You are. But their job is to assist you in any way they can to help you do that job, particularly with regard to bringing them to maturity in Christ. Okay? So That's we've discipline. Been, we've been trying to remind our leaders that, that they were created in God's image. That's what we, and that's why we discipline. Yeah. We love them because they were created in God's image. And none of them has successfully obliterated that image. Some of them have put mud on it. Yep. <laughs> Some of them cover it up pretty well at times. But none of us is so good at being evil that we've obliterated God's image in us. Mm -hmm. Only God can do that. 
And that's that horrible punishment that, and we don't like to say it, but it is real. And there are people for whom that will apply. Let's make sure it's not our kids. Okay, now, in all of that, what that means is that from now on, our role, everything we talk about, even including next week when we're talking about coordinating other people, our role is to accomplish the teaching goals. The teaching goals are what you've got in the goal wheel. That's what parenting's about. And one of these days you're going to wake up and figure out one or two of those is just not that important. You're going to throw it away. That's fine because when you've done that, it's probably because something else has been shown to be more important. And frequently it's because your child is developed enough that you've seen that's no longer that applicable to this child. But this really is. And again, the older your children are, the more specific to that child those goal wheels are going to be. So with my children as adults, uh, extraordinarily specific because they are well-established in their identities and who they are. Um, and my role is very, very narrow, so that makes them even more specific, right? Um, now, if you've got ch very small children, um, or if you've got numerous children, then, uh, again, you're not going to have one goal wheel for all those kids. You're going to have one piece. And each one of those is going to change as they grow. Which means the more kids you have, the more you better be on your ball. And I, I look, I've, I've got a child with four kids. I've got a child with five kids. I think they're nuts. I, good nuts, by the way. I mean, I... I, I they're kind of heroes to me in a way um, because they're doing such an amazing job too. But good night, you know, following those kids in their development and, and seeing how unique every single one of them is and constantly responding to that uniqueness to trigger it and grow it and shape it. Pedia. And resist the temptation, because they've all uniquely trigger your anger as well. Resist the temptation to respond with punishment. Good grief, that's hard. I had three. I, and three, by the way, was, what is it? Uh, it's uh, geometrically, not uh, arithmetically. Is that the right terminology? It's like multiplication, not addition, to how hard it is over two. All right exponentially. I'll go with that one. It was really harder. <laughs> and so, yeah, those of us with more, it's a big job, which means, number one, you're going to invest time. If you do not, you will not accomplish your goals, period. It's that simple. And there's times when you're going to have to ask yourself, what is more important than bringing those goals about in that human being? I can think of a few things. My relationship with God. Funny thing is, he's the one who told me to do that, so that never comes into conflict. My relationship with their mother. Funny thing is, she's on the team. And in fact, building that relationship with her is one of the most important things I can do to reach those goals. So there's things that, that, you know, we can even see, maybe there's validity to them being more important. Those aren't the problems. The problems are the things we want to do. I got to be honest with you. I got lots of time to do the things I want to do now. I don't regret not doing those things. 
with my kids. And I spend a lot of time with my kids. But I do regret not doing other things with them more. And I don't, I don't get to go back. You don't get to. You've got to convince yourself that's that important. The second thing is, the other priority is the other parent or parents. And in this room now, everybody in this room is married. The other class, that's not the same. In our congregation, we have many, 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 many single parents. But single refers to their relationship status vis-a-vis -vis marriage, not to their parenting. No one has to be a single parent. And in fact, very few people actually are with regard to actual parenting. However, it's one of those things that we don't always think through. So, next week, I'm going to ask you to read and, again, interact with it, do the exercises. If you've got questions, throw them out as soon as we get started. Read the section on the parenting team and fill in that chart because we're going to start with that chart. And then we're going to spend the rest of that time interacting about how do we coordinate all of those people involved in reaching those goals. Because you're the only person who can if you're the parent. That makes sense? Okay, any questions? Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.